it's been dumbed down by mass marketing, commercial American stuff. And so that's why, you know, the pizza out of the world is the, the standard that people kind of think about. But there's a lot more active involvement in the work than I think in a lot of other kitchens. Yeah. And, and there's skill and technique to everything. I don't mean to put it down, but of pizza course. should be a little more respected, I think, for what it takes. If, if you see somebody doing it at that kind of level. Hello and welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento, where we take you behind the scenes and introduce you to some of the people who are making your favorite dining experiences happen. I'm your host, Max Connor, joined by my good friend and co-host, Neil Little. Neil, what have you been cooking? You know, recently, especially because we've been doing this pizza month, uh, I've just been eating a lot of pizza, which, again, I'm not, I'm totally okay with. My body's not very happy with me. But the, the, my my, uh, my taste buds are very happy with me. Uh, this has just been a lot of fun for me because, like we've talked about on the podcast previously, you and I both are really into pizza and not just eating pizza, but like making it as well. And it's just been so much fun these past couple episodes, and especially this episode, hearing about the different processes and ways people go about to make their own pizza. And one of the things I was actually kind of reflecting on the other day was, you know, so far we've done Pizza Source Rex. Pizza Supreme Bing, and now we're jumping into our guest today. It's how cool, how different all three pizzas are as well. And it just shows how much cool stuff we have going on around here and how, yes, they're all the same technically pizza, but none of them are comparable. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's easy to do a pizza month, right? Everybody loves pizza. I love pizza. You love pizza. Who doesn't love pizza? That's like one of those, I mean, it's a simple test. If someone, I don't trust you if you don't. Yeah, exactly. If you say you don't love pizza and ice cream... We can't be friends. It's as simple as that. And I knew, you know, having made pizza at home, I understand the nuance. I'm not an expert by any means, so I'm not going to go off like I'm some kind of food snob or expert. I'm not a food historian or food writer, but I knew there's a lot of nuance to pizza. You know it when you taste it. If you've made it at home, you understand how difficult it can be. But I didn't just know how much care could really get put into it. And we learned that last week from Bennett Pizza Supreme Being. We learned it from Chloe the week before. And we're going to get even deeper into how much nuance, how much care, how much craft and art can go into making a pizza pie. And Robert Mazzullo is the perfect person to talk to about it because... I hope everyone listening to this will be as blown away as we were about just the level of craft and hard work and skill that goes into making that pizza in a wood-fired oven. It's inspiring. It really is. You know, for a while now, I've actually been wanting what you know, those commercials have gotten with the master class where they show, like, you can talk to all these people about what they're a master in. And I got to tell you, in this episode... This episode is a masterclass with Robert, and it is so much fun to not only hear the craft that you talk about, but the passion as well. You really hear it. He loves what he does, and it's just really fun to hear someone talk about something they're so passionate about, and I'm excited to share this episode with you guys. Absolutely. So with that, let's jump right into our episode with Robert Mazzullo of Mazzullo Pizzeria. Mazzullo, thank you so much for being here on the Dine One Six. It's great to have you. Nice to be here. So we always open the show by asking what food was like growing up in the home. What was your experience as a kid? It was always a, you know, not serious in a be quiet and eat your meal kind of way, but my mom especially, but my dad to some degree as well, um, would cook from scratch. And uh, there was just no 
no thought about it otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, we would go out to eat, but when we ate at home, my mom was a really serious home cook, even though she had no professional training. Her mother cooked in the same way. And my dad came from that similar kind of background and they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And so even early on, my mom would teach me things, you know, asking her, I've mentioned this story once or twice before, cause it's always stuck out in my head. But, you know, I was like, how do you make mayonnaise mom? And rather than just blow me off or, and there certainly wasn't YouTube back then to go watch a video right. about yeah. it. She said, well, get the cookbook out. And so we pulled down her, uh, autographed copy of Julia Child. <gasps> and, um, nice. we did have a food processor by that point and we made, we made, and that was, you know, like 11 or 12 years old. And so yeah. that was the kind of stuff that was going on at home. And we'd eat a lot of, I don't know, by middle America standards, odd things that pickled tongue and lots of shellfish from my dad growing up in New York, my Italian side, we'd eat clams and soft shell crab and things like that, that mm. a little more accessible on Long Island than out here for yeah. sure. But that was part of normal meals. My mom would always make us whatever we wanted on our birthday. My go-to year after year was linguine and clam sauce mm. and zucchini soup, which I don't say this to pat myself <laughs> on the back, but I doubt there's too many odd kids here <laughs> choosing that for their birthday meal. You yeah. Know? So my son certainly would have cheeseburgers. So. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up, what was your family dynamic like? Did you have any brothers or sisters? Or I'm in the middle. That? I have an older and younger sister. We're all pretty close to Three of us were born in under four years, so we lived in the same house since night. My parents are still there since 1980, over right beyond the pizzeria. So, oh, cool. um, that's my center of the universe. Even though I moved around a lot since, but uh, one sister's now in San Diego. The other sister's out here in El Dorado Hills. Sacramento essentially has been home for all of us for a long time. So. Yeah, you mentioned asking how to make mayonnaise in the kitchen, but when did you otherwise start to get interested in food? When did food start to sort of particularly, uh, I mean, clams linguine as a kid, like obviously as well, but when- Don't sleep on the zucchini soup here. Come on now. Yeah, no, I'll keep that in there as well, of course. But when, besides your taste for food, when did wanting to cook it or cooking it at home start to become something you were interested in? There were various points where we were doing one thing or another at the house. And my mom was a bit of a, Certainly, you know, the feminism of the time was pushing people towards leaving the domestic side of life behind. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think she ever saw there being any problem with keeping your house clean or fixing your own meal that it was gendered. That was the problem. Yeah. But unfortunately, the push back then was like, oh, housework is drudgery. You should have a robot or not do it. Right. <laughs> but she was of the attitude like, well, no, it's, it's work for everybody. And so my sisters and I were all taught to sew. We were all taught to clean the house. We were all involved in the kitchen. There was never a, a delineation of boys' roles and girls' roles. And so that was that kind of feminism that she brought to how we grew up. And I think of the three of us, not that my sisters, they, they both like to cook, but I was the one who I like working with my hands. I don't think I've got the chops to be, you know, sitting at a desk all day. I have to do enough of it now running the business, but mm-hmm. that comes from, you know, a personal survival rather than just a love for it. Right. Um, that same point, you know, on 12, I really start to pay attention a little bit more trying to make things. I got my first job at 15 and a half through, I was working at Biba as a dishwasher, but my parents were involved in the Italian American community and they knew Biba Caggiano. And as her place was just getting started, she was doing the soft opening and my parents were 
going to it that night mm -hmm. and I happened to be babysitting for some neighborhood kid. And so we were talking on the phone and mom said, oh, there's, you know, there's some food when you get home. It's your dad and I are going out to this new restaurant. And I said, oh, we'll see if you can get me a job. And they talked to Doug Silva, who was the chef at the time for Biba and they picked up his card. And so I called him up. And so for the next year and a half, I would wash dishes on Saturday night there and cut squid and do some other low level grunt work. But I liked it in the kitchen quite a lot and certainly liked the food. Trying to think of other early food memories like that. I don't know. It, it, some of it was more just that there was a value to it, that there was a, this is how we socialize. This is, mm. we're not doing this because we're hungry alone, but it's, it's a community of the family. And my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, if it was gross or obscure. <laughs> Deformed. <laughs> yeah. They, they, he was one of these old school guys who they'd grown up poor, you know, so they, they had probably not had a whole lot of choice at some yeah. point as to what they could afford. But um, he loved shellfish and living on Long Island as they did in their later years. They'd grown up in Manhattan and moved to the Bronx then by the time my dad was a kid. But there on Long Island, just you could go down to the wharf not very far from their house and get clams. And so on these hot summer days, they didn't have air conditioning. We would sit in his basement. I still remember you know, I would go out there in the summertime for a couple of weeks often and I'm sitting there with a a half a bushel of clams that we had bought down at the wharf and him and me, he would shuck them and then I would top them with Tabasco and lemon juice and we'd just eat them raw. And that's the kind of stuff as a kid that it mattered to me enough that I think my cousins all thought it was kind of gross. That, mm -hmm. But uh, my grandfather appreciated because I like to eat all that stuff too. So That's cool. so cool. Yeah, yeah the, the, like I, I just like, to me, that's like the postcard of like a grandson and a grandfather shucking oysters with like the sunset in the background. Like you just can't make that up. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, dishwasher at Biba right after they open. That's like a so it's that's funny. a pretty solid Sacramento origin story as far as being in the food scene. So that's you know at the time you don't appreciate of course, it. Of course, you right. know it's just a job, or you know maybe you appreciate it, but you don't. But yeah, it's kind of fun to look back on. My good friend got a job through me washing dishes, and he had a Vespa, and we'd ride over there and. You know, a couple of these old Italian waiters see the Vespa pulling up. And to them, that was, you know, what they'd grown up riding. And yeah. so there's lots of great stories of fun. And then, you know, it was a very integrated kitchen in a lot of ways. And so learning from one of the Vietnamese cooks doing fish head soup, he was saving all the salmon heads. And that was new to me at the time, you know, like, oh, wow, what do you do with those? And he said, oh, here, I'll show you. And he had, it was mostly for himself at home. They right. were putting that on the menu at Biba, but yeah. he had all the ingredients there with shallots and lemongrass. And I felt very fortunate that was you know, because like when I got older, culinary school and meeting people who'd gotten into cooking, they'd worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken or something mm -hmm. and, and no, no real like uh, gross or whatever. But right. um, it's just different. I was working right off the bat in a scratch kitchen of a pretty serious nature. And I feel very fortunate that was, you know, my introduction to it was was at that level. So, yeah, the sous chef at the time, Dan Brown, he's since passed away. He was the sweetest guy and he would joke with us and. When family meal would come out, you know, he'd make sure that we were eating. And there wasn't any of the, uh, having worked in a few places since and seen how other environments, a lot more on the East Coast, are just ridiculously cutthroat. I mean, not mm -hmm. cutthroat to the point like I'm doing this because I can't wait to advance my skills. It was more the bad old ways of yeah. you're going to cut the other person down. Even Me. if it doesn't gain you, it's just how you. And uh, that wasn't how it was there at all. There was more of a respect and a camaraderie and, you know, I still, I was a dishwasher. I wasn't contributing sure, that right. much, but, yeah. um, it, it was, it wasn't the kind of place that scared you away. 
it pulled you in. So that's great. So walk us through sort of early career in food. You mentioned you moved around a lot. So walk us through sort of the decision to go to culinary school and where you worked, bringing you back eventually to Sacramento. So I stayed at Biba just about to the end of high school, but as high school was just finishing up, I was trying to finish my schoolwork and I think I was just a bit of a goof off. I didn't think I had the time to work Saturday nights. Now I look back and I'm like, I didn't have six hours once a week, <laughs> but you know, I know this is the case. I have, I have had people work for me who, when they have to work their first eight hour shift, they're like, I'm so tired. And yeah. you're just like, I've been here 12 and I'm going to be here another four. And I'm sorry if your feet hurt, but eight hours, really? That's, <laughs> right. you, you don't have that much in you. <laughs> um, so I, uh, finished high school and my plan was to go to culinary school with that in mind as, as high school was coming to a close. A classmate of mine's brother was at the Culinary Institute of America where I ended up going and Doug Silva, who I mentioned before, was the chef at Biba. He had gone there. And so I had this idea of, yeah, that would be a good career choice or could do that for school and continue on. And so right after high school, I had the grand plan to move to Oakland. My aunt lived there. I was going to go find a new job, something in a kitchen there. First day I'm there, I had a bicycle accident and broke both my arms. Oh, two of my teeth, like, scarred up my face, was back home in my own bedroom 24 hours later <laughs> in oh cast. Yeah. So luckily, you know, it's really good to have loving family when you're in a situation like that. Yeah. A couple months later, my arms are finally better. And we knew the owners of the, in the Sterling Hotel, it's still there, but Chantrell was the restaurant at the time, 13th and H. I knew the owner of that through my mom's, my mom ran a daycare out of our house. And so we had a lot of families that we knew and his kids were some of the young kids at the daycare. And so I talked to Jay. They hired me on there doing basic prep work and stuff. There was a Filipino baker there, a guy named Louis, who kind of took me under his wing because I would show interest in little things. And so the minute he saw somebody else could make the butter roses, if <laughs> he taught me. Mm. But, it, you know, sometimes it, that's what it takes is that you're, you're young enough and interested enough, but someone else is smart enough to be like, oh, here's how I, <laughs> I shorten my workload. So, yeah. yeah, before long, that became one of the daily tasks was to make a 9,500 butter roses. And oh, my gosh. You make that first one so well. It's like, look what I did. Good. You can do the rest. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Don't volunteer for anything. Nope. But, you know, it serves you well because, you know, later on – you're a little more well-rounded. You don't just look like the guy who knows how to work a hotline. You can jump from place to place. You know, enthusiasm can be a dangerous thing. I vividly remember the first time showing my mom I actually knew how to do the laundry. And guess what I've been doing on my own ever since? That just did not work out for me. That's right. Part of the reason I'm teaching my kids how to cook is so that when they're 12, suddenly they can be in the kitchen making dinner. Exactly. I need a pizza on this fly. Let's go, guys. That's exactly right. Heard, Dad. Heard. I kind of love, you know, we talked about how Robert is such an integral part of the Sacramento food scene. But the thought of him riding a Vespa to Biba to be a dishwasher almost could not be more romantic for the restaurant scene here in Sacramento. I just love that visual, and it just, you know, I kind of picture it in a black and white image in my mind, and that just shows how much he's been a part and how much he's seen Sacramento grow from then till now. Yeah, I mean, like you said, can you get a better Sacramento guy who owns a pizzeria, one of the best pizzerias in town, 
A better origin story than riding a Vespa to the most classic Italian restaurant in Sacramento for a long time to wash dishes at 16. And he mentioned it to get to work in a really high quality scratch kitchen and see how that's done at 16. You, you can't buy that kind of education in the culinary world. So after working at the Sterling Hotel and doing those butter roses, he decided to go up to New York City, went to culinary school, and he did an externship back here in California at Mustard's in Yountville, which I know, as you as someone from the Napa area have said, is a really well-known, long-time established classic place out there. It is. Mustard's is one of those spots where I, I wouldn't put on the same level as the French Laundry, per se, but isn't it is an iconic staple up the Napa Valley where a lot of people go. From there, he went out to a place called Magnolia Grill, which had a James Beard award-winning chef, was a really well-known place in the South and North Carolina. And then he met a girl who was from Minneapolis and he decided to move to Minnesota. And he kind of switched gears a little bit and got a job at a bakery. And he worked in a bakery for 12 years learning how to make bread from scratch, pastries from scratch, pies. We didn't get into a ton of his baking. We talk a little bit about pie later in this episode, which is fun. But that's where his shift really happened. And pizza is really all about bread and all about the dough. If you don't have a good dough for pizza, you don't have a good pizza, right? It kind of starts there and everything else is sort of the cherry on top after that. And that is especially true at Mazzulo's. So let's jump back into the interview. Up to this point, we've talked a lot about different kinds of foods, but curiously, we haven't really talked about pizza yet. And Neil asked him about that. So where did this love for pizza come from? Because we really haven't heard you talk about pizza so far. As a teenager, we went to Italy on a family vacation. That'll do. 1986. And... It was as simple as that. I mean, if you've never been out of the U.S. and you haven't traveled to some of the better parts of Europe for food, which is quite a lot, especially mm -hmm. now, but Italy and Spain will open your eyes to so much. Yeah. The average place is so good that it would be the better places in most American towns. Right. And if you really seek out and spend a little bit, you'll have meals that blow away most American <laughs> You'll never forget. Experience. Certainly at that level. I mean, you can get great food here, don't get me wrong, but that you can just walk into a place with no reservation and it's at a level that doesn't exist here. And and that was the case with, with Italy. We're having a pizza in Pompeii. And it's like, this is pizza? This is amazing. Can I have a second one? And so you just you know, eating and drinking and having a great time. And that started the fire for me in my mind about pizza. And then it followed on with living in into the Twin Cities in, in Minneapolis. There was a pizzeria in St. Paul that opened up and it was an American guy who, for whatever reason, lived in Italy a lot as a young man. And so he opened up a pizzeria and I went there and I was like, he's doing truly Italian. I mean, you could take this to Italy and they wouldn't realize it wasn't their thing. That inspired me a lot. I was like, mm -hmm. I, if he can do this, why can't I do this? And I'd gotten to a point where I was like, okay, I guess I am gonna be a cook for the rest of my life. And I think a lot of people probably go through, you know, questions of their career choices and is this really what I want to do forever? And I had had a little bit of that in, you know, my late twenties. And I, I guess I came to the realization like, well, I better become my own boss if I really want to have the control that I'd like. And it yeah. may, it may still be all the hard work and it certainly was. And it, it may not be the answer financially that getting a university degree in a big corporate job would be, but it, it certainly was better than just working for somebody else for a paycheck. And I took that idea about 
starting my own business and seeing another pizzeria like what I'd had in Italy. And I drew up a business plan and I'd actually tried to get one going in Minneapolis. A fellow I had worked for, I approached him and it got well along the way. But before any money was lost, we realized that we weren't going to be able to work together as well as I'd hoped. Mm. But it was a good first stab at it. And so when I came home, not too much later than that, I just put a new business plan together and talked to family and friends and had a lot of people who were willing to loan me some money. And um, it took about $200,000 and found a what I think turned out to be just the best spot we could have been in. Because when you look back over the last years with COVID and what the rents were going up and up and up, yeah. we had a very forgiving landlord for the first few years. And for any business to get off the ground, it's not just about hard work. There's so much that is out of your control. And yeah, you're still in, even though you're a destination, you're also a neighborhood spot. So you kind of have that neighborhood base. You also opened, did you, was the recession, <laughs> you opened in 2008. So was the recession, could you tell it was happening when you opened or was like you opened and then six months later you were like, oh no, this things it, are going horribly wrong. Yeah, it was, it was, it was more of, it didn't <laughs> look great, but I was like, okay, it's not so bad, but it just kept falling apart for a year and a half. And, and finally by 2010, we'd probably hit the bottom and we were coming back up. But yeah, it, it was around year four. I had a, a day where I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, it's getting to the point where I've feared we're going to have to choose to not pay a bill or... Mm. How do I scrimp and save? Because just don't have the people coming in the door. And then as, you know, this miracle, this Eater article, Chris Bianco mentioned us as one of the places he'd go eat. And it's hard in Sacramento to get national attention. Yeah, I mean, that's... And it it was a godsend. Things turned around immediately. And it was overnight almost? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was... We really saw an increase after that, and then the B picked up on it, and we got re-reviewed. We'd been reviewed when we were brand new. We had this glowing review that came out then, and uh, that really helped us get on on our feet in a way that those first four years had been had been really tough. And uh, it's not been smooth sailing ever since, but the last few years have finally kind of, I think we've figured out what we're doing well enough, and people know us well enough, and... I, I'm always a little surprised. I, I keep thinking like this for the, you know, when's the other shoe going to drop? What's going to go, <laughs> what's going to go next? So, but that's probably human nature to yeah. presume there's <laughs> another lightning strike sooner or later. How did you develop your pizza? Did you do any kind of like great pizza pilgrimage? I know sometimes people who want to do barbecue in California, they'll go to the South and travel all through Texas and you know, North Carolina and try all the different regions. Did, have, have you taken any sort of pizza pilgrimages and gone back to Italy and then compared New York pizza and done that thing? Or did you just kind of know from your life what you wanted to do and the style you wanted? I had been doing it, even if it wasn't in a... On purpose. A conscious purpose. <laughs> Not in research, quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm hungry. <laughs> but yes, before I came back to Sacramento, my parents took a year at retirement and moved to Italy. And so they were living there in 2005, 2006. And I sold my house in Minneapolis, planning to move back to Sacramento. But I went to visit them at the end of their time in Italy. And they have good friends in Naples who, at one point, I was down there with him. And we went around to every last pizzeria. And, and that's really the part of the world you want to go if you're going to. Sure. There's decent pizza in a lot of Italy. And there's certainly it's been having a renaissance that it 15 years ago hadn't quite reached. Um, but that was the most intentional, certainly, uh, pizza eating and researching. 
But at the same time, there's so much overlap with baking, which I had been doing for years. It wasn't, I was learning everything from, from scratch. I didn't know how to work a wood oven, but that was stuff through a lot of trial and error that we figured out there at Missoula. And now I watch other people who are trained by people who were trained by people who were trained by people. And I see what strike me is unnecessarily slow and I want to get in there. We ate at a great place. The other day. I'm not going to name names. It was out of, not in Sacramento. And the pizza was fabulous, but they were turning them out at this snail's pace. And it's like, okay, if you can get the best ice cream in the world, but you can serve three scoops every 10 minutes, it's got to look somehow out of balance <laughs> yeah. to the business. And and so that's part of the benefit of, of having to figure out a few things on your own is that you'll probably make a lot of mistakes, but you'll also come up with some innovations that when you just stay in a traditional mode of doing it. The trial and error with the dough, the first year we really did play around a lot with things and working out our timing. And I see some old pictures now of what the pizza looked like. And I I think, oh, (laughs) I only knew. But, you know, to be honest, we still play with it a little bit. I've never felt like it's a settled question. We've tried to figure out how we can find flour that isn't as expensive. But unfortunately, that's one that you just have to, you can't really skimp on that. Right. I've got a really great guy. I think you've talked to him, Shannon. He is in all the best ways. I mean, it's like a metronome. I could just, I know he's just going to boom, 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 be there for me. And he, he does the majority of the mixing now. You know, I step in and a few others do when, when he's off, but um, it's really nice having that kind of consistency. And we go back and forth, you know, checking on timing and temperatures. And those are those fluctuations that you always have throughout the year, unless you lived in a temperature controlled space. We certainly have to change it up now when the weather gets this hot and the water coming out of the pipe is just so much warmer. And So, yeah, so what are, with it being a 1,000 degrees outside, what are some of the things you do that are differently from, say, like February, March right now? The most obvious is just, you know, you've got an increase in your flower temperature, your water temperature, possibly your starter temperature. And so, you know, we have to have the AC running, but it's maybe going to be 75, 76 Whereas in February, it might be 67 mm-hmm. or in the storeroom, even a little colder if we're bringing a bag of flour from there. So so we're watching those temperatures. We're always measuring so that we can adjust with the water or at least be planning so that we're not leaving the flour in a cold spot that we're scaling it the night before and putting it somewhere warmer so we can have a consistent temperature with that. We're watching the water temperatures coming out of the pipes and chilling or warming the water depending on that sweet spot that we want to be in. We keep a starter alive every day. We feed it at the end of the shift, 10 o'clock at night. We keep it in a little wine fridge, and that keeps it not too cold, which standard refrigerator would would be so cold that it would shut down, really. The wine fridge is nice because it's at a 60, depending on the time of year. Right now, it's in the 60s, and so the starter grows well there. In the wintertime, we wouldn't even use that. We just would keep it in the storeroom, or if it was, you know, it doesn't get cold anymore. But 15 years ago, yeah, we had to actually put it up on the shelf higher up to make sure it didn't get cold in January. So you're playing more with temperatures right now more than amounts. Yeah, the amounts, okay. you know, the recipes or the the scaling, the the mixes, all, those are within a few ounces of water change due to the absorption of the flour as long as, you know, but so we recently started working with Dave Keisel, KP Milling for some whole wheat. And we keep that in our starter. It's a sprouted, and so it has more enzymatic activity and helps to enliven the starter, and we get a little better lift for it. And it's only about 2% of the total dough weight in the end, but it's a noticeable improvement. But it also is because it's a whole wheat, it, it absorbs a lot more 
moisture to get to a fluidity that you would expect. It's just what's the texture you want? What's the mm-hmm. preference. result? Preference. Yeah. yeah. So I tried cool. to make pizza yesterday. I have a little uni pizza oven. Just made a same day dough yesterday and I think it got too warm and overproved, so it was super slack when I stretched it. It took me like eight seconds to stretch it out. It was so slack, and then in the pizza oven. Flat. It, it actually puffed up because it was – I used a little bit. I used some starter, but I used a little bit of just commercial use also. But it was too – it didn't have enough elasticity, so it, when I tried to get the peel back underneath it to turn it, nope. it just tore it. <laughs> it just tore. The first one, like – Ripped in the middle, burned cheese all over the whole thing. I ruined like four pizzas, and then I had two, <laughs> two balls of dough left, and I ended up, I found a pan that my mom had that I could cook them on. At the kids' fed. Yeah, the kids ate torn pizza, and there was plenty of like quiet cursing on the side yard where the pizza oven was. The kids were in the pool <laughs> trying not to drop a loud F-bomb as I'm trying to pull smoking, smoldering carcass of pizza out of the pizza oven. So I say that to say I love hearing about the science and just how much technique and care goes into it's not what just, otherwise is such a humble food, right? I mean, it just, but just what goes I, I, well, into it to is, make good pizza. This has always struck me as people have a, a, a misevaluation of what it takes to put out a— Yeah. If, if you took any other cook and made them work with live fire, no more thermostats, no more gas, mm-hmm. and that's where I, I kind of think people should give pizza a little more— I know it's been dumbed down by mass marketing, commercial American stuff. And so that's why, you know, the pizza out of the world is the the standard that people kind of think about. But we're working with dough that is an actively living in a real sense, you know, yeah. that yeast is, is moving and doing stuff. And we're having to time it for when we think customers are coming in. That's right. We're not baking it when the dough is at its optimum. Like, you know, in a bakery at 4 a.m., you're planning to have bread going in the oven at 6 a.m. And so you're watching it and you're adjusting it. If you need to speed it up, you put it in a warmer part of the bakery, need to slow it down, you can move it up somewhere cooler, or you just do bake it a little earlier, a little bit later, because it's not ready. Mm-hmm. We don't have that luxury. We we have to hit it when the customer there. And so we're having, and maybe we don't always, I'm not trying to claim like every last pizza comes out at that perfect moment, but it is a daily question. Like, okay, what's the dough look like at 8 a.m. when we get there? What's the dough look like after we've had it out for two hours, is it moving at the speed we think it should be? Do we need to hold off or do we need to, if we leave it in a stack, it'll move slower. If we open up that stack so each tray has got a little more airflow around it. There's a lot more active involvement in the work than I think in a lot of other kitchens. Yeah. And there's skill and technique to everything. I don't mean to put down, but pizza should be a little more respected, I think, for what it takes. If if you see somebody doing it at that kind of level where it's still handwork, it's still without that thermostat, without the stat quantity that you can just pop it in. And of course, the deep fryer is at the right temperature. And yeah. You said there's a lot. I mean, just from the dough, anyone who listens is just going to be like, what, you know, how does 2% of the overall flour mixture make that much of a difference? It does. It makes a huge difference to then actually cooking it in an oven that could range in a hundred degree difference, depending on the spot where it is and watching it and spinning it. So what was it like when you first got that oven installed and you cooked your first few pizzas? Was it just, okay, my oven's built now? I had worked a little bit with a dual gas wood oven in in Minneapolis. So I had some rough ideas of just what we were doing, but really learning how to control the deck temperature so that you don't overheat and burn the bottoms, Mm -hmm. how to 
when it's busy, keep the flow going, even though your deck is cooling down and it may be hot still to put your hand in there, but it's, it's certainly not cooking the pizzas like you need and how you have to rotate and work with the hot spots and the cool spots in the oven. And that did take us a little while to figure that out, but it's such a pleasure now. And I kind of train a new guy on the oven who they go from being just run over by the sheer number of things you have to pay attention to at one, at one moment. <laughs> And they're able to cook one or two pizzas and they're, they're feeling overwhelmed by it. And then they get to a point where they can kind of keep up with the volume, but their quality starts to, they're getting too hot or it's not hot enough. And then you start teaching them like, this is how you move it. And this is where you got to be. And you got to be anticipating the wood dying back. So you're feeding it at the right time, but don't overload it. Cause you're going to have it scorching. You'll be up so hot that it's burnt before it's finished. And and then they reach a point where they get it, you know, that, and I can turn my back and I don't have to really watch them. And that's a lot of fun to see because it becomes, I don't know if any of you know how to juggle, but no, I, <laughs> this thing that looks almost magical and all of a sudden it just, it's so easy to do and you can keep it going. And that's that feeling with the oven when, when you know, we've got the line of tickets is just deep and, and there's going to be no let up for a couple of hours and can watch these guys really put I mean, pizza after pizza through the oven and it's it, their it canvas out. it's art and it's art to me it's like, like a musical instrument yeah right? it's you try to play piano and don't know how to play it seems impossible sure that's to a play better both analogy hands at the same time seems impossible and then you know you see somebody i can't do it but i watch my eight-year-old daughter play piano. i can barely use a fork with my left hand <laughs> <laughs> So let's run that back for a bit, because he mentioned it briefly, but this is one of the biggest parts of Mazzullo's history, which is Chris Bianco, who is a pizziolo down in Phoenix. He owns what has been voted many times in different publications the best pizza in America. He won a James Beard Award in 2003 for the best chef in the Southwest, and he was just recently named the best restaurateur in the country by the James Beard Foundation, which is their highest award. So this guy's saying that Mazzullo's is one of the places he likes to eat or would like to eat in America is a big freaking deal. The other thing that Robert talked about that was so cool was the science behind this all. Like, making pizza at night is not going to Safeway, picking up a CPK pizza, throwing it in at 350 and it's done half an hour later. Oh no, most doughs are started, if not the morning before, the night before. And, you know, we heard him talk about how, like, on, you know, colder days, you got to put the dough up higher to get the heat. On warmer days, you got to get a little bit lower. And how the temperatures can dictate things. It's just so cool to see how much effort and love he puts into it, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, even down to learning how to work a wood fire oven and how we compared it and he agreed. It's like a musical instrument. He doesn't have thermostats. He doesn't know exactly how hot the oven is. He knows by look and feel and timing and all of it, there is so much skill that goes into making a good, naturally leavened wood fire pizza. It, it really kind of blows you away. Like we said at the beginning, you appreciate all these places that do really amazing fusion or new American cuisine and they work on the hot line and you go to Mazzullo's and you get this amazing pizza and I hope people get to listen to this and really understand how much went into getting that pizza on your table and how perfected it is and how he's still working to perfect it constantly, right? It was really cool and really fun to hear and it just makes me want to go there and eat a pizza as soon as I possibly can, which I very likely will be tonight. I would say there is a listening back to this, there is a real good chance that I will be there tonight to get a pizza. I think that's a fantastic idea. I might join you on it. 
So let's jump back into this masterclass with Robert Mazzullo. He has a few opinions on how he doesn't believe pizza gets the respect it deserves, and also a few hot takes on how maybe you should consume your pizza. How do you say Neapolitan pizza? What's the proper sort of pronunciation of Great question. Yeah. I have no idea. I, I think I would just say Neapolitan okay, pizza. Okay, cool. Right. We, <laughs> I personally fine. have stopped using that to describe our pizza. I say wood-fired. Sure. Okay. Because it's you're not— We're not in Naples. Right. We're, we're, right. we're in Sacramento. And and to some degree, I think our pizza is its own— Thing. It's yeah. very similar, but it's not that. Right. We are texturally a little different. I think we have, if I can say this compliment to myself, uh, better <laughs> tasting dough. I think a lot of the standard Neapolitan is kind of a very mild, almost bland level mm -hmm. of flavor in the, in the dough. Ours stands alone as bread. And then we make it into a good pizza. Yeah. And I think a lot of the Neapolitan pizza is more about volume and kind of speed. They're using commercial yeast often enough. And that's not that it's bad, but it's if you're judging it on the bread quality alone, I think that's where you're going to say it's it doesn't have the flavor that a, a sourdough method right. can get you. Did it take some education of the guests? And oh, it still does. Okay. Yeah, I was still gonna, yeah. To like have a blistered crust, right? To like have pizza that looks different than your through a conveyor belt oven round table. There's a lot that I would love if we could get people to to get on board. Watch this YouTube video before your reservation. Of I wish we didn't have to cut the pizzas. I wish we could serve them whole. Oh, interesting. And people could use a knife and fork. Somehow Americans use a knife and fork for the vast majority of what they eat. Maybe French fries and hamburgers. We pick up with our hands. We seem to think pizza can only be eaten in our hands. We do not understand that a knife and fork works just fine for pizza. <laughs> and early on, we tried to get people to let us know if you want it cut, but we're going to serve them whole. And, oh, you would have— <laughs> The uproar. Just people flummoxed. How am I supposed to—literally, how am I supposed to eat this? I'm like— the fork is right there. <laughs> what is the confusion? So I know you know how to using. use it. Yeah. But, you know, okay. And then, well, the reason I say that is because the style of pizza that, you know, wood oven produces tends to be a little floppier. And that sounds like a negative word. And people definitely talk about tip sag. and But they're... <laughs> 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 yeah, that is the way it's referred to. Yeah, no, Sorry. I I tried to hold it in, uh, but it just yeah. Um, <laughs> we're keeping that in. <laughs> I I think that's putting a, a standard on it that may be fine if that's what you're looking for, but it is not absolute. If I have a pizza that isn't crisp in that way, I don't see it as a default. I just see it as a different style. Yeah, and I wish people understood that there's a difference between a wet, soft pizza and a hard, crisp pizza. That isn't a quality difference. Right. And if we're putting out something that's a little wetter and softer, that's one of those educational things for some folks. They're like, ew, it was so wet in the center. And I'm like, well, you got the three meats pizza and you added bacon and extra cheese to it. You tell me how it wasn't going to be. The three meats is already a little heavy in my opinion, but it's what sells. And now you're putting two more wet things to it. It's going to come out that way. And It'd be great if we could just get people to understand that the, the quality isn't, does it taste good? Is it seasoned? Was it actually cooked or did you just perceive because it was wetter that it was somehow, you know, look at the bottom. It, do you see a little bit of blistering here and there? Then it probably is cooked. Is it got a rawness to the inside the crumb? That would tell you some of those things that you're perceiving 
yes or no, but the, the misjudging it is the hardest one. Sometimes folks, yeah, they see the blistering as either it needs to be blistered. Like, you know, I'll see these pizzas that they're like just burnt. Right. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, okay, that's whoever said, give me a burnt loaf of bread, you know? <laughs> and so they go that direction with pizza or they just want this very mild, light tan looking crust and it nice and crispy hard. And so we're somewhere in between. And yeah. So how did you decide the type of pizza you wanted to serve at Masulo? I wanted a wood oven. I wanted a natural starter, a Levan, a, a sourdough method. And English kind of lacks the right words for all of that. So it, I'm always putting all these qualifiers on it when I describe it. But I wanted all of those aspects. I wanted the good quality bread that I'd learned to make. And I wanted to be as close to what you get in Italy, but also with understanding of American ingredients. And you won't see bacon as we see it almost anywhere outside of England and Ireland, smoked belly meat with a slight sweetness to it. Mm -hmm. But I think it totally fits conceptually with pizza. And so there was no problem in my mind putting that on. But that's one of those American aspects that I wanted to be able to include and when we started, certainly the pizzas in Italy were still very by the book. The innovation was not what it is now. I didn't think we were going out on a limb by using a few cheeses that you wouldn't see there mm -hmm. or toppings that we have that fit the idea and make sense. But I also didn't want to, I, I like things that are very straightforward and simple. I like music that doesn't need the over ornamentation. One of my favorite singers is a guy named Ted Hawkins and he's Occasionally had a band backing him. He's passed away now, but mostly it's just his fantastic voice and him on guitar. And it's, it's heaven on earth to listen mm. to. It's it, plenty of stuff. I think in its raw simplicity is what I strive for. I think, you know, the decor in the pizzeria has a lot of that. We don't have a whole lot of color and things to look at. We've got some lamps and some walls and uh, try to make it still pretty within that. But not covering the walls with a whole bunch of stuff. And similarly, the pizza, I like maybe, you know, personally, I'd put a lot more onions on everything because I just love <laughs> onions, but I don't think they need to constantly be reinventing. I think there's a lot of value to being consistent. I spent years yeah. in kitchens where we'd have a dish on for maybe a week and we were barely getting it down to do respect to that dish and we were changing it again. And yeah, you know, the, the techniques of cooking a pork chop on a grill don't change too much. But at the same time, I think if you just stay with that dish in a certain way, a little bit longer, you can do those things better. And there's a little too much value, I think, sometimes in being creative for the sake of creativity as mm -hmm. opposed to being consistent and giving people something that I came in six months ago and it was this way. And I'll come in six months from now and it'll still be this way. And we live in a world that is so topsy-turvy sometimes. I think it's great to have something that is just solid constantly. Yeah. And that's what we're striving for. And, you know, not that I turn my creative side off, but we let a couple dishes float in and out by seasonality. We take a few pizzas off, but we keep a lot of the ones on that have proven for one reason or another to work. Sometimes I want to flex my muscles a little bit and let people know we know a touch more. We used to do a lot more daily desserts. Maybe one of these years I'll get back to it, but it was pushing that rock uphill a little too much. You know, I was baking a pie every day and We'd only sell five of the eight slices and right. just felt like that was a crime. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if I could get on my soapbox, this is, this is the soapbox, right? Yeah. Americans don't know what, what the deal with pie is anymore. Have you had the average like Costco pie? Mm -hmm. It's not even baked. Yeah. I mean, it, it's truly like the cornstarch is still 
raw inside of it. And the crust is blonde. And and people talk about pie like it was this thing we we ate all the time. And maybe that was true 200 years ago. But when I was baking the pies, I felt we were doing the job with them. And then people were like, oh, I don't know. I don't like pie. I'm like, yeah, you've been eating Marie Callender's and Costco. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I um, couldn't agree more. <laughs> and my wife, I was just, I made a peach pie yesterday. Yes, you did. That picture was sexy last night. I will give you credit. My, my wife doesn't really like fruit pie, but she, most of the pie she's had is like, Overly sweet, gelatinous, it just like, yeah. I mean, I went to a place that's known for pies, and they, like, you know, it's like they have a peach pie, and then they just dump, not even browned, but just like a white sugar crumble on the top of it. And it's like, this pie is already sweet, and you're just punching me in the face. It feels like I'm taking a bite and throwing a white sugar cube in my mouth as I eat it at the same time. So well, that's that whole garnishing of stuff that goes back to my mentioning of things being kept simple. I see people, you know, brushing crust with oil and sprinkling Parmesan on the outside. And it's, why don't you just go the whole route and do the, hey, it's double stuffed crust. We've got two cheeses in there and it's, you know, <laughs> three liters of Pepsi for only seven, you know. <laughs> just let the crust be the crust. It's the vehicle to hold the other things and it needs to taste good, but you don't need to give it this third element that the rest of the pizza didn't have. And, and yeah, and sugar on a pie crust is like, that's what's inside the pie. That's right. That's right. Oh, man. I would like to try one of your pies then. You'll have to text us. Next time you get a wild hair up your nose and you decide, all right, I'm going to bake a pie for a dessert special. I will, we will be will there. Well, there one of these days, I, my wife always is saying, when are you going to bake me another pie? So I, I will get on the horn and get her one, and I'll try and drop off one for you guys. All right. Sounds good. Love that. Yeah. So what recommendations would you have for two home pizza chefs? Like as, as people who want to – Start cooking pizza at home. What are some simple things that we should start doing? Like one for it, since I'm going to start doing is the temperature of everything. Now understanding all that, what other recommendations do you have? So I haven't worked with any of the what look pretty good new home-sized ovens. I would suggest if you are doing pizza, make a little more dough than you think you need. And be willing to sacrifice the first one. So you, if you're not sure how to check your temperatures, is your deck too hot or something? One of the little tricks we learned long ago when the deck does get too hot, we'd keep a, a large diameter aluminum cake pan and we'll put a little water in it. And if the deck has gotten too hot, which I would venture is often the case at a home pizza oven, um, because, you know, you turned it on and the party's going on and it's been 20 minutes and you're like, oh, it's time to cook the pizzas. And the first one goes in and it's just scorching. So that's either where you put that sacrifice dough in. But the aluminum cake pan with a half inch of water, don't put too much because you don't want to spill it in the oven or burn yourself taking it out or something. But that will absorb a lot of that heat mm. and cool off your deck to a point that your pizza won't scorch. That's great, great advice. That's perfect. I could have used that yesterday. Yeah, right. Yeah. Don't be afraid to use flour when you're stretching. Uh, okay. I think a lot of times people are just doing a light dusting and, and then it's sticking and they're making these amoeba shaped pies and they don't look like they want them to. We literally, you know, hit it with flour, take it out, pop it into a, another cake pan that we're using there to hold some flour to get it fully dried out on the outside. And, and then with a couple of quick shakes, you can knock off most of that excess flour by the time you're transferring it to the peel and into the oven. As long as you work quick, it'll be just the right amount where the, the dough won't stick to anything and it will come out and it'll still be clean. Mm -hmm. It won't be, you know, with this crust of raw flour on the bottom or yeah. something. 
But once it comes down from 120 degrees outside, I'll think I'm going to play around with a couple of there these ideas. Go. Yeah. So we've heard all about you in restaurants and, and at Missoula and things like that. Like, who are you outside of the restaurant? What are some of your hobbies? What do you like to do? Who are you once you step away from the, the pizza oven? My wife and I like to go running. She does triathlons. And uh, she got me into running. And my own standing at the oven got me into running. I was about eight years ago, nine years ago. My heels were hurting. And you know, just the basic on your feet all day. Mm -hmm. And she was always running. So I just started running with her and it was the saving grace. It, it took away a lot of that leg pain, got me stronger. You know, you think you're strong enough, but as you get older, you realize you, you weren't as strong as you thought you were. And so that, that's really caught fire with me. I do a lot of trail running and occasionally longer races. And that's one of the things I really look forward to. My son has gotten us into ping pong as of late. That's been Ooh, the latest nice. trend at home. Okay, So we play that a lot at home. And I like being with my family. Um, How old are your kids? The oldest is out of the house. He's okay. in the Air Force down in Vegas. He's wow. been down there for cool. years. Poor guy. This last week has just been 115, 116. Oh, and then the middle one and the youngest are at home. Uh, the youngest is 14. The middle one's 19. Do, are they showing the interest in pizzas or cooking or anything? Or are they staying as far away from it because that's what mom and dad do? <laughs> uh, my youngest, luckily, is smart enough. I think he's going to... Uh, uh, stay away from <laughs> he'll, he'll come in and wash dishes at the restaurant. I, I kind of twist his arm, but he does a great job. And he likes to cook enough that he's in the kitchen with me. He made a good part of the dinner last night. He said to me the other day, because he was comparing to some food he'd had outside of the house. And he said, I didn't realize how privileged we were, you know, but you guys really got to cook. And his mom and I smiled. And <laughs> she's a big part of why the pizzeria has survived all these years. She works for Sutter Health and she's been so considerate of the crazy hours that the restaurant takes and the pride that she has to, to show it off. And even just from the, the crass financial aspect of things, she carries the health insurance. And I get a little attention like things like this because of the nature of it being a public sort of job, but she really does the angel work in the family. She helps parents with kids with birth defects. And oh, wow. Yeah, stuff that's a lot more serious than a burnt pizza ever will <laughs> right. be. Yeah. And uh, I only say this just to give her a lot of respect here. Uh, she's just wonderful. Let's jump into rapid fire. So pizza is often considered a cheap guilty pleasure for people. Not Mazzullo type pizza. But what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? For a long time, anytime I went to a restaurant that had a club sandwich, I'd always get the club sandwich, at least the first time I was there. And it was... Honestly, 20 plus years, <laughs> I wouldn't let myself order anything else. And I generally enjoyed every one of those. And it was kind of this quest to find the best club sandwich. And it was one of those early food memories was as a kid going to, we were in Death Valley on a family trip down to Phoenix and we had stopped off overnight to sleep there. And this little restaurant in Stovepipe Wells, and it was, you know, probably like a Denny's kind of level place, but I'd never had a club sandwich before. And it was one of those aha, like, this is what a sandwich is supposed to be like. Uh -huh. And and it put me on that quest for a long time. And I still really like them. I don't hold myself to that strict level anymore because I think I've eaten all my bacon that I ever need to eat in my life. <laughs> but I still really like them. That's, That's a perfect answer. Yeah, I love that answer. I, I have heard that the Pancake Circus on Broadway, and it's either 21st or 24th, has the best club sandwich in town. Uh, I don't know why I know that, but I've actually heard that, that from like three a, different that people. That is a random. Yeah. yeah. What is your favorite food, movie, or show? 
It's a little cliche, but Big Night, I really like that. Mm. More, I think, just because of the relationship between the brothers, but it also doesn't use the food as a crutch. I think some movies, they show you some over-the-top level stuff. And sure, that Timbale is over-the-top in its own way, but it was kind of thing somebody might actually make. It wasn't just a, a fancy dance move. Yeah. And that whole scene where he's yelling at him, why do they want two starch? That just cracks me up every time <laughs> I see it. So. You mentioned you guys cooked dinner last night. What's your favorite dish to cook at home? We eat a lot of pasta at home. If I go by what my kids request, we do a pan pizza and uh, fried chicken sandwiches. Mm. We do those at home a lot. For me, though, yeah, it would almost always be, as my wife jokes, I always say a simple pasta. And she doesn't think I'd make them simple, but... <laughs> Something, whether it's rice or potatoes or pasta, a starch like that and everything else based upon it, those are the things that I like best of all. Yeah. What's a local joint you want to give, like, where you guys might go on, like, a, a Tuesday night or something? What's what's a little local watering hole to send people to? Uh, my wife and I often go for lunch, maybe not a Tuesday night, but, but yeah. she can get a break during the night. We'll go to Lalo's over, okay. um, yep. I guess that's Tahoe Park, Hollywood Park. Park. Yeah. yeah, 24th and something. That's really great. What do you get there? Uh, the Warache. Okay. I live three blocks away. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but uh, everything I've gotten there has always been been really good. Awesome. What's the dish from your childhood you wish you could go back in time and eat? I guess I'm lucky. You know, my parents are still alive, and we do reproduce some of those things. My mom on my birthday makes me zucchini soup every year. That's awesome. I love it. That's awesome. Um, and that I, I probably would, I would eat that a lot if— I don't know why I don't make it at home more often because I really still like that. I'd love to be able to just sit with some clams or mm-hmm. oysters are okay, but clams are really the top for me, that kind of stuff from childhood. Well, that was an incredible interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, that yeah. was really fun. I'm looking forward to re-listening to this one. I'm definitely going to take some notes. I don't know about you, but holy cow, I learned a lot in that episode. I mean, pizza with a knife and fork makes sense to me. All the care that goes into the dough to make it perfect. He gave us some great tips on not being afraid to use too much flour, cooling the deck with a pan full of water. Let's not forget about tip sag. It's okay to have a little bit of tip sag in your pizza. But yeah, I mean, we I just... It was fun and engaging for us, but it also was just an education in pizza and what goes into it. We've said it over and over throughout this episode, but I hope everybody goes to a good scratch kitchen pizzeria sometime soon in Sacramento and can sit there and close their eyes and appreciate all the hard work that went into making that slice of pie. Yeah, what Robert does is just so cool and so unique and just flat out delicious. And it's just one of the many things that Sacramento has to offer it's not a good pizza we have here. And really, it's just really fun to see how much care goes into it and just the appreciation that comes back. And you see that coming out of the kitchen. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, next week, we're going to relaunch an episode we did early in the year with Shannon, who was mentioned in this episode. So if you didn't get a chance next week in the feed, there'll be an episode all about the dough maker at Mazzullo. Shannon McElroy. So you'll get a little bit more about what Mazzullo's doing. We hope you get a chance to get over there and try a pizza. If you like this episode, 
Please subscribe, like, wherever you listen. We're in all your podcast apps. You can also listen to us on YouTube. Please, please, please send it to friends and family. That's how the show is going to grow. You can just send them our website, dine16.com. They can listen right from there on their phone, their computer, whatever. Send them a link from YouTube. That's an easy place where people like to listen as well. You can follow us on Instagram. The handle is at Dine16. You can see some behind the scenes of how we get this podcast made, as well as what we're cooking and what we're eating. If you want to reach out to us via email, you can email me at max at Dine16.com or neil, N-E-I-L-L, at Dine16.com. If you've got any ideas, thoughts on the show, we'd love to hear them. Our opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine16 is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Citrus Heights, California. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming up. The Farm to Fork Festival is coming up. We're going to be out there in some way, shape, or form letting people know about the Dine16. We hope you get out there as well to enjoy some music and some good food. Keep an eye on that feed for the next episode of Dine16. And until then, as always, eat some pizza you love with someone you love. (laughs) 